Well, good morning, church. Man, it's so good to be with you. I say that every time, but I am just so thankful to be a part of this church and to be with you this morning. And hopefully your heart's affections for the Lord were stirred by that worship. So thankful for our team who leads us every week and kind of gets our hearts ready and our focus directed towards the word of the Lord. And so if you have a copy of God's word, I want to invite you to grab it and open to the first to last book of the New Testament, the little letter of Jude. If you got to Revelation, the last book, you went just too far. Jude is where we're going to be. I'm so excited this morning to kick off a brand new series. One of the things we love to do here at Salem Heights is to work through complete books of the Bible. And although this is a short letter written by Jude, it is still very timely, relevant, and full of practical truth for the church today. So Jude is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking at the first four verses. I hope you have a copy of God's word and you will join me there. Do you remember the morning of September 8, 2020? I do. I woke up that morning with a bunch of text messages on my phone. I had traveled the day before from Salem over to Central Oregon to spend a few days with my brothers. And I was woken up that morning on September 8, 2020 to a number of texts to tell me that on the other side of the mountain in the valley, there was a raging fire making its way down the canyon. The day before, I had driven through Detroit and I had seen a bunch of people in the lake on boats and around enjoying the last days of summer as they were celebrating Labor Day weekend. They were all out there, unaware that within a day, within hours, all of that would be decimated by fire. There was a smell of smoke in the air. There had been other fires burning in Oregon at that time. But the people at the lake, the people in Detroit and in that area seemed unconcerned. They were familiar with that smell that time of year. But those who are part of the volunteer firefighters up in that area were concerned. They had been having meetings. They knew that those fires were smoldering in different areas around Detroit, but had not been put all the way out because the terrain where those fires were at, they couldn't get to it directly. And with the forecast of increased winds, there was a concern growing. And so that night they went out to look for fires. Was the fire going to get kicked up? And as the winds began to grow, some up to 60 miles an hour, the fires began to go. And fires from multiple areas began to come down the valley, down the canyon. Some people described it as they were sprinting down. As word got out that the fires were starting to approach Detroit, People got in their cars and started to spread the word. One article said that a man, a volunteer firefighter, got his kids in the suburban, began driving around the streets of Detroit, yelling out, fire, fire, it's time to get out now, we have to go. There were people there vacationing. One couple told us the story, they were asleep in their RV at Detroit, where people started to bang on their door of their camper saying, you have to get out now. The fire's not coming, it's all around us. We have to leave now. Everything in that moment changed in a night. These weren't warning signs to get ready for. The time to go, the time for action was now. This little letter of Jude in the New Testament is a sounding siren to the church. The sounding siren saying something is happening and it's here. There's no time to wait. We must respond. And so as we study this little letter over the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how relevant and practical it is for the church today. 
And so with that in mind, I'd like for us to spend this morning looking at the first four verses of the letter of Jude that kind of serve as a natural introduction to who Jude was and why he wrote this letter. If you found your place in Jude, would you stand with me as we read our text this morning? And as you do, I want to remind you that this book is God's word. It has the ability to impact your heart and your minds this morning. If you're ready to receive the word, say ready. ready. This is the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith, that was delivered to the saints once for all. For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly, turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father God, we just ask now as we kick off this study that you would guide our thoughts and speak to our hearts. Father, we know that all of your word is eternal. It's timeless. It's sufficient. And it's qualified to speak to today. So God, would you help us see how this book of Jude meets us where we're at in this moment. God, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Jude is a sounding siren to the church. The church was in danger and the time to respond was now. So who is Jude? Out of all the New Testament authors, he's maybe more of the one obscure, the one that kind of gets overlooked. This little letter is right before a major book of the Bible that we spend a lot of time in, Revelation. And it comes after all the, the awesome writings of Paul and Peter and the other New Testament authors. Yet Jude was someone that the Lord used to write a letter that was included in his inspired word. Jude tells us here in verse 1 that he is a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. The common understanding historically of who this person was was that Jude was one of the half-brothers of Jesus. Jesus had four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. But here Jude does not identify himself as Jesus' brother. He identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and the brother of of James. Why does he do that? Well, one of the most common and well widely held opinions of that is that Jude knew in his heart that he didn't always have affection for Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament scriptures, we see a couple of places where all of his brothers had rejected him. In John chapter 7, it says that Jesus' brothers rejected him as the Messiah. In Mark chapter 3, it actually says that they all believed he was out of his mind. But they could not deny the resurrection. They could not deny the ascension as they saw their brother lift up off the, the earth and to ascend into heaven, saying that he would one day return for his church. And so now Jude gladly chooses to serve his brother, not just as his brother, but as his master and Lord. Jude here is a, a brother who had been impacted not just by the family relationship he had with Jesus, but by the sovereign work that he saw 
in his half-brother who is fully God and fully man. And immediately we sense the urgency of his message here. Jude cuts right to the point. Look again with me at verse 3. Jude says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Jude's saying here, I I intended to sit down and and I was just thinking about you and I I wanted to write just a kind of a, a leisurely letter, a devotional thought about, man, how great our salvation is. And don't forget what Christ has done for you. But then I had gotten word that there was not just something coming towards the church, something that was going to start to impact believers. It was now. And so just like those people who went around warning those at Detroit that fire was here, the time to go was now, Jude now takes this moment to, instead of writing a leisurely letter, he turns it into a passionate plea. Warren Wearsby in his commentary on Jude said, the spirit led Jude to put down his harp and sound the trumpet. The epistle of Jude is a call to arms. And here was Jude's warning for the church. Apostasy is not near, it's here. Now, as we start to look at this introduction this morning, I want you just to be thinking in the back of your mind that this isn't just kind of understanding the history of this letter and understanding what it was meant for and what it was intended to do. But remember, we believe that this letter is not only something that was fitting for that day, it's fitting for today. The threat to the church of apostasy is as alive today as it was at the moment that Jude felt the urge to write this plea. What is apostasy? One dictionary defined it as this, the act of rebelling against, forsaking, abandoning, or falling away from what one has believed. Apostasy is the result when false teaching or ideas work their way into an area And begin to change a person's opinion to where they don't only kind of start to consider new ideas. They reject or leave one way of believing to adopt and accept another. And this was Jude's concern. Not that the church was being confronted from the outside. That there was competing ideas that were questioning Christianity. That were questioning the gospel. That were questioning the the credibility and the truthfulness of what Jesus claimed he had come to do and what he had claimed he had done and what his followers had claimed and were uh, proclaiming that he had done. But that people had actually assumed an identity, a fake identity, and worked their way into the congregation, to the fellowship of the church, but they had ulterior motives. Their desire was to begin to question the gospel, question the word, begin to turn people's hearts away from God, away from faith in Christ to follow something else. And so Jude's warning is that it's not that people are gonna start coming here and and, and asking you really hard questions that are gonna get you to challenge your faith. He's saying people are already among your midst who are not with you, they're not for you. They're actually there to trick you, to confuse you, to discourage you, and to cause you to not just kind of slowly pull away and become lukewarm towards Christ, but to completely reject what he has done to follow something else. One commentary said this, Jude was alarmed at the scope and seriousness of apostasy in his day, especially since that apostolic age had not yet closed. 
Think about this. We're, we're here thousands of years later after Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And we are still seeing people trying to come in to, to get us to question our faith. People constantly challenging Christianity, beginning to be just so, so angry at the, the claims of Christianity. And we can kind of go, maybe that built up over time. But Judah's saying, this is just decades after this has all happened. There are still eyewitnesses to the people who had seen Jesus and heard his words who are alive when when this is happening. He says, already it's come under attack because what Christ came to do was to serve and to solve a spiritual problem, to deal with a spiritual war. And that enemy that was alive at that point is still wrangling and trying to attack and tear down what, what God has done through Christ. And he's shocked. He's like, how is this already happening? How are we already questioning our faith? Jude isn't the only New Testament author to wonder this. We see this in Paul, the book of Galatians. How quickly have you been confused about what the gospel actually is? And so what Jude starts to highlight is what apostasy was attacking, what those false teachers were trying to do. And the first thing he highlights is that Jude warned that the word was under attack. Now, some people believe there's kind of some questions on when this letter was actually penned, but it's anywhere from a range of about 35 years after Jesus had died and gone back to heaven to about 60 years. So we're still looking at a time frame fairly close to when Jesus was actually on the earth. And at the time that Jude is writing this letter, the Bible as we have it today, the completed canon of scripture, all those books who have been tested and verified as being inspired by God and collected into one book we call the Bible, that had not yet been finished. So what was under attack? Well, what Jude is saying here is the faith that had been delivered to those followers in the early church was under attack. What did those believers have at that point? It says here in verse three, a faith that had been delivered to the saints once for all. He's saying what was already communicated to that church was the completed revelation. There was nothing more needed than what Christ had come and had already accomplished through his his life, his death, his resurrection and his ascension. At that time, even though they did not have the completed Bible, They had the apostles teaching. It tells us in Acts 2.42 that these early church followers of Christ who believed in the gospel for salvation said devoted themselves to the apostles teaching. These men who had walked with Jesus, who had been witness to his crucifixion, had been witness to his resurrection, who had been witness to his ascension, had then begun to be obedient to what he had called them to do. They go out into the world and they're telling people about Jesus. They're saying, this is what he said. This is what he taught. This is what he did. And they're passing that on. And the people are listening to that and they're learning from that and they're meditating on that. They had the apostles teaching, but they also had the gospel. First Corinthians 15, Paul says this, for I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So at this time, when Jude's writing this letter, what's under attack? The word of God. What was the word of God at this time in history? It was all those Old Testament writings that had already been written. It was the teaching of the apostles telling about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And within just a few short decades of that actually happening, because those aren't just fairy tales and fables. That was an actual historical event that took place on this planet. It was already being attacked. 
These false teachers were attacking the word through distortion and contradiction. Verse four says they were turning the grace of our God into sensuality and denying Jesus Christ, our only master and Lord. At this time, one of the most prevailing heresies that was in the world when Judas writing this letter was something known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism had two major beliefs. The first is that all physical matter is evil, but the spiritual is good. And so what did that lead people who believed in Gnosticism to do? It gave them a complete distortion of grace. It allowed them to just not even worry about what they did in the flesh because the flesh didn't matter. It was evil. Who cared about that? It was only about the spiritual things. And so Gnosticism allowed people to take great liberty to do whatever they wanted in the flesh. It was unrestrained. One commentator described it like this. They cultivated their spiritual lives and allowed their flesh to do anything it liked with the result that they were guilty of all kinds of lawlessness. So they didn't worry about kind of restraining the the sinful desires of the flesh. They did whatever they wanted to do. It was unrestrained. It was lewd. It was out in front. But they didn't care about that because that was all just worthless. All they really wanted to cultivate was their spiritual understanding. That's what Gnosticism said. And what does that do? It distorts grace. What is grace? This undeserved favor that God gives us. And these types of people were kind of people like, hey, I can sin because every time I sin, God's grace keeps abounding and abounding. So they were using grace to kind of give them permission to do whatever they wanted in the flesh. Do you see the distortion? You see how they're taking something that God said that's true and they're twisting it to make something that's completely different than how God intended it? That was already happening. Do you know that continues to happen today? How, How thankful are you for forgiveness and grace? I hope more than that, but yeah, I mean, guys, there's no forgiveness or grace. This is just a holy huddle. Okay, we're just trying to convince ourselves it's going to be okay. No, forgiveness and grace is real, but you know what? We're still called to live holy lives. Not a holiness that actually gets God to approve us and accept me, to live a holy life out, to live a life that follows after God that I couldn't live in myself, but I can live because his spirit is in me. and He can actually empower me to live like him. Even though we live in, a, in this time of grace and forgiveness, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be concerned with living in obedience to what God has called us to do. But the second thing that Gnosticism did back then, and we still see its effects today, is that it said knowledge is the path to salvation. The Gnostics had a goal that I'm going to attain salvation, not through my physical works, but through this special secret knowledge that I will come to find through these Gnostic teachers. So we have the distortion of grace, but then we also see Gnosticism was starting to contradict the gospel because the gospel says there's one way to Jesus and that's through faith. You can't earn it. There's nothing you could do to, to make God owe it to you. He's given it to you freely. But the Gnostics were coming in saying, no, no, there's actually another way of salvation. It's not the gospel. It's not what Christ did. In fact, Gnosticism denied that Jesus was fully God and fully man. We see the same attack today. 
to pick and choose parts of the Bible that we want to obey and follow, to abuse grace, to question the relevance of the scriptures for today. All those things are under attack. It's not that they're going to start to impact us as a church. They're here and they're now. And if they're not contended against, if we don't defend ourselves against those lies, they can have a devastating effect, effect in our life as the church. So Jude is warning them that the word of God is under attack. But then there's a second warning that we see here is that the church itself was under attack. Look again at verse four. Judah says this, for some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They are ungodly. The battle was not only with those outside of the church, but now was within Judah's warning them that there have been some that have come in by stealth. He's saying there are some people that are among you. They're actually saying, I'm a Christian. I'm part of you. I'm part of this church. I'm part of this fellowship. I have the same belief. But they don't. It's a lie. During the Cold War, one of the most prevailing concerns was the, the existence of moles within the United States. These different spies who would come in and they would be people that you might not know, uh, that they were spies because they, they looked like you and they talked like you and they, they believed the same things that you believed uh, allegedly and they, they seemed to be one with you. But in fact, a mole is someone that pretends to be on your side who looks and talks and acts like you but is secretly working for your enemy. And we know that in the, whole, in the history of America, there have been people in here that... that had American citizenship, but they were actually working for foreign countries and they were passing along secrets and they were here trying to harm us, but yet you couldn't tell. They could be your neighbor. They could be the person that you were doing life with, someone that you knew in your community. Judah's saying here that there are some that have come in by stealth, meaning that they'll be hard to recognize. They won't enter in through force. They're not gonna kick down the door and saying, here's all these things that I believe that are completely different than you that I'm trying to convince you to believe. No, they're gonna come in by stealth. They're gonna come in and they're gonna blend in. They're gonna be very hard to identify. And they're going to be accepted by you because they seemingly talk the talk and walk the walk, but they have no desire to be discipled. They have no desire to see Christ be glorified. Their aim is to distort the message of the gospel. Their aim is to discourage followers of Christ and their aim is to damage the church. Judah's saying, these people aren't just coming. They've already gotten on the inside. They're there and they are distorting the gospel. They're distorting the word. They are breaking the church apart. And this tactic is still in play today. Salem Heights Church is not exempt from this danger. It is likely that there are wolves in our midst right now. Jesus himself warned, he says, be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravaging wolves. Then he gives us this little help. He says, you'll recognize them by their fruit. Judas saying, hey, there's going to be people that come in and they say they're, they're followers of me, but they're actually in there to destroy the church. And Judas saying, wake up. Don't let that be. Pay attention. Apostasy is not near. It's here. 
And then there's, third, there's a third warning. Jude also warns him that the Lord Jesus is under attack. How? Well, I mentioned this a few moments ago, but Gnosticism denied the physical, the value of the physical flesh. It said the flesh is worthless, it's pointless, don't even focus on it. And in doing so, when it came to Jesus, they denied that Jesus was actually human. They denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Think about those two rejections that Gnosticism did. To deny the humanity of Jesus means that he was not a perfect substitute for the sins of mankind. To deny that he rose from the dead means that no sacrifice has been offered on our behalf and we are still on the hook for all of our sins and we will have to stand and give an account for that. These two attacks by Gnosticism are damaging to the gospel because both of those facts, the humanity of Jesus and his bodily resurrection are crucial for the gospel to be true. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. This is why I think it's significant in the opening statements where Jude in this letter says, he refers to his brother Jesus as Jesus Christ. Christ wasn't his last name. Jesus And in calling him Jesus Christ, what Judas affirming is Jesus was his human name because he was fully human. In Christ, he's affirming his deity. He was fully God in the flesh. Both were crucial to the gospel, the message by which we build our entire life upon. Why is it important that Judas warning us that Jesus is under attack? Because Christ is the foundation of every believer. All we know, all we believe, all we hope for, it rests on what he has done and who he is. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for no one can lay any foundation other than what has already been laid down. And that foundation is Jesus Christ. And so the reality of why Jude is warning us about Christ being under attack, because if our foundation crumbles, our faith crashes. Have you ever seen a house that has a foundation that has begun to crumble? Over time, the earth begins to move and that foundation was not done rightly. And as the foundation of that house begins to shift and the ground begins to break, the walls become all uneven and it begins to fall apart. It becomes to where it can't be lived in anymore. Psalm chapter 11, verse three says this, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is why this is so important. This is why Judas highlighting this fact is that if what they're saying about Christ is true, and if it is true that he didn't rise from the dead, that he wasn't fully human, then everything that we're building our faith upon is pointless. We're believing in something that has no power to save us, has no power to give us hope, has no power to lead us in times of question. But Jesus said, I I have come to provide a way. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And although that sounds like an exclusive message, it is exclusive, meaning that there's only one way to have your sin problem dealt with, and that's through faith in the gospel accepting what Jesus has done for you on your behalf and allowing him to forgive you, allowing him to wash you clean, allowing him to put his Holy Spirit in you. But that exclusive way is an, is an inclusive invitation to all who would believe. 
But that exclusive way is still under attack today. And so all these things that Jude is highlighting, the word is under attack. The church is under attack. Jesus is under attack. We're all true when he wrote this letter just a few decades after Jesus lived on this earth. And they are absolutely still true today. And that's why this letter is so practical and so relevant for us to pay attention to because it offers us wisdom for how we need to navigate false teaching, how we can tell a false teacher, one who comes in by stealth, and how we can remain faithful to Christ. We need this message today. And so Jude's plea to the church is to contend for the faith. This is the overarching message of this, this letter, contend for the faith. That word contend, you can circle it in your Bible. In the Greek language, means to struggle for, to fight for. In fact, it comes from a word that we get in English, we're called to agonize over. Oftentimes this word is used to describe something that might take place in an athletic event or in a military combat where it's like you're just trying to summon up every last ounce of energy and dedicate it towards this defense because it is vital. The struggle is intense. One commentary put it like this, Jude is enlivening the church of his day to an immediate and intense struggle, a very real fight requiring all of their available energy. And so I believe that if Jude were with us this morning here at Salem Heights Church, I believe he would speak to us with the same urgency that he wrote about in this day. And this would be his plea. As apostasy seeks to break in, the church must stand together and contend. As apostasy seeks to break in, to, to come in when we are susceptible, when our guard is down, when we think we're okay, when we think we're safe, and it's trying to get in so that it can distort and break us apart from the inside out, Jude would say, it's time for you to all collectively, not just the pastors, not just those who serve as servants, the entire church, all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. This is an all hands on deck situation. We all must contend for the faith. So this is the question for us this morning, Salem Heights. Will our faith stand the testing or will we falter under the schemes of our enemy? Jude is going to highlight several ways that we can contend as the church. But one of the ways that I believe we can contend today one of the ways that we can defend the faith, we can struggle to maintain that these enemies stay on the outside and that they hear about the gospel and their need for a savior, but they're not allowed to impact our faith and have us question the gospel, question Jesus Christ. One of the ways that we can do that, we can contend today is to be aware of counterfeits. Counterfeits are everywhere. In every aspect of life, there are fake imposters everywhere. I recently came across a video that I appreciated because it actually highlights a process of verification that might seem silly, but it, it kind of drew me to a point that I want to make as we conclude our message this morning. Take a look at this video of one way one company is trying to guarantee authenticity. Yo, check it out. Want to know if the price of those wave runners is too good to be true? Or if I wear my kicks 49 is truly selling dead stocks? Or if that Jordan 1 Royal box is original, eBay checks. See that little blue check mark? Behind it is a team of independent authenticators who check. And we 
mean everything. Every tongue, check. Every toe box, check. Every corner of every box, check, 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 check. Every logo, every label, every lace loop. Yes, yeah, checked. The luster of the leather, the topography on the tags, to the straightness of the stitching on the sole. Everything you can see, and even some things you can't. Really? really? Then they tag them, log them in the system, box them up, and ship them out with no cost for the buyer or seller. eBay checks, so the moment you open that box is as real as real gets. That matters to some of you in here who are sneakerheads. <laughs> that might not matter to some of you, but think about, think about the, the, the steps taken, the process implemented, the people hired to validate a product as being authentic. Why would they need to go to that length? Because there's millions upon millions of fakes trying to say this is a real thing, and, and, and it's not trying to take advantage of, of you, trying to take something from you. And they go to these great lengths to try to guarantee that what you believe is true is actually true. Why would I show you that video? I, not because I, I want you to go out and buy something from eBay. I, I want you to realize that there is great value in having a multi-step process. One of the greatest illustrations that I remember being here at Salem Heights, I know some of you have been here uh, as long as I've been, longer than I have been, but we remember the, the great illustration back in the day of, of Pastor Ron with the money, right? How do you tell the counterfeit? You don't spend time dealing with fakes, you just focus on what is real. I think it's important as a believer that we adopt a multi-step verification process because the best way to spot a fake is to know the real thing. How are we gonna know when the word of God is under attack? When an idea that comes in, some interpretation, some idea about what the Bible is saying, how are we going to make sure that it's actually what the word of God says? How are we going to make sure that the church is not divided from within, that the wolves don't get in and turn us against each other and get us to question the faith and, and totally rebel and walk away from Christ? How are we going to make sure that Jesus Christ is not distorted and the gospel is not changed? Well, I think there are three things we can do today to contend what we can commit ourselves to as followers of Christ. The first is this. The first way that you can contend is to know the word. That's why we say bring your Bibles to church. Open them up with us as we teach you the word. Don't take my word for it. See it for yourself. But the more you know the word, the more discernment will grow in your life. Because discernment grows through devotion. Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The more we open these pages and we read and we meditate and we invite the Holy Spirit to direct our thoughts and to give us understanding of what he intended when he had those human authors write down God's words, We'll begin to grow in our knowledge of this and discernment will be the result. You know what discernment is? The ability to tell between right and wrong. Discernment comes from the word of God. Knowing truth. We study this word, then any idea that comes in that doesn't align with that, we're gonna be able to say, that's a fake, I'm not letting that in. 
But too often in our Christian lives, we rely on the pastor to know the word and to tell us what to think about the word. And we are susceptible to being deceived if we rely on somebody else's discernment and not develop discernment on our own. We want you to be students of the word. We want to gather around God's word. That's why we don't do ministries that are just coming together and fellowshipping. We fellowship around God's word every time we come together because we need that ongoing discernment to keep our guard up and to contend for the faith. Amen? We can't get lazy on the job. Second way we can contend today is to know the church. If the church is under attack, we got to make sure that we know one another. To know the church means to know each other and to be known. Because the Bible said we will know each other by our fruit. I hope that it's an unsettling reality that there could be people, even in this message today, in this room today, who are not here because they love Jesus. They're actually here looking for an opportunity to pick us off as wolves. Now, instead of you becoming the Holy Spirit police going around trying to go wolf hunting today, (laughs) I say get in fellowship, get in community. Because there's gonna be some of us that are just Struggling. We're in the process of sanctification. We're not perfect people, right? There's a difference between a believer who's struggling, who maybe is not acting right, who's, who's not walking in the spirit and is manifesting actions of the flesh to a wolf that is completely fake, not genuine at all, and actually trying to get us to not be in God's word, not be with other people. Come and listen to me only. Let me be your coach. Let me be your guru. Let me tell you what you should think. Those are the people we need to be weary of. It says in Hebrews chapter three, watch out brothers and sisters so there won't be in you an evil and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage each other daily while it's still called the day so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. If we wanna have protection, if we wanna contend for the faith, we have to know the word, but we have to know the church. We have to be in the fellowship, watching each other, loving each other. The third way we can contend today is we need to know the Lord. If Jesus Christ is under attack, we need to know him and his voice more intimately. I love this verse in John chapter 10. Jesus is talking here and he says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Earlier in this text in John chapter 10, Jesus talks about being the good shepherd and he says he warns them that there are some in there who are in positions of leadership or who are positions to teach and instruct them who are actually not good shepherds. They are wolves. They they come to seek and to kill and destroy, but Jesus is not that. He's the good shepherd. There's a story about a group that was uh, over in Israel on a, on a uh, tour and their tour guide said, hey, one of the things you'll notice about our country is that there'll be herds of sheep just walking through different parts of town. And you'll, what's amazing is that their shepherd will just walk in front of them and they will just be walking behind them because they know the voice of their shepherd. And so the next day, the, the tour guide was taking them to a part of the city and they saw this, all these sheep and they were just kind of going everywhere in all these different directions. And there's this person chasing them from behind and the, the people in the tour bus start chuckling because they're like, what is going on? That's not what he said happens here. And the tour guide quickly said, oh no, 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 that's not the shepherd. That's the butcher. The sheep know the voice of the Lord. How do they know it? They're in his word. They're with his people. And they listen to his voice. And Jesus' voice is clear. He says, I am the truth. 
we hear his voice and we follow what he says, as a good shepherd, he will protect us. He will lead us. He will guide us all the days of our life. If we want to contend and we want to respond to Jude's warning here, we have to know the word. We have to know each other. And we have to know our Lord. Friends, the stakes are so high. There's a picture that I saw that was taken shortly after the fires there up in Detroit. That just reminds us the impact of the danger. The aftermath of when something comes and sweeps through what happens. I was just looking at that picture and I'd say, how foolish would we be to read this letter and to study as a church and to hear his warning and just kind of go, well, yeah, that's coming for the church someday. But right now I feel pretty safe and we're, we're okay. The stakes are high. The impact of unchecked doctrine will be disastrous in a local church. We cannot ignore the warning of scripture here. Indifference is not an option. You and I must contend for the faith. Would you pray with me? Father God, we we come to you now and we we hear this, this plea, this passionate warning from Jude as he calls the church to wake up, to see that there's enemies among us, that there are enemies not just that are attacking from the outside, but there are those on the inside who are who are not here as followers of you, who are trying to distort the truth. And Father, the the impacts of Gnosticism are seen throughout human history. There are other false beliefs, false religions, false ideas that are constantly bombarding. But the enemy is smart. He's not going to just try to knock down the door of the church and insist we believe. He's going to use his, his people to try to infiltrate the church, to get us to question your truth, to question the Spirit of God in each other, and to question Christ, may it never be true of Salem Heights, Lord. I pray that we would contend for the faith, that we would know your word, that we would know each other, to to look out for each other, to pray for one another, and that we would know Jesus more. Let us be a beacon of light, God, that never goes out because we contended for the faith that's found in you and you alone. I pray this in your son's name. Amen.